Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is trumpet player and vocalist Mark Pender. First of all, let's talk about Article 13. If you're an artist, Article 13 might affect you a lot more than you think. And let me tell you why. Article 13 is a provision of the EU Copyright Directive. And this was voted on by the European Parliament on September 12th, not into law yet, but to move forward. Now, this was created to protect content online, and it especially applies to platforms like YouTube. What does it mean exactly? Well, you know, in the United States here, we can upload anything, and we can copy it from just about any artist that we want and put it online and it's up to the artist label the publisher to find that out and then say okay either take it down or else we're going to add advertising in the eu if article 13 becomes law that's actually going to change everything because what it means is now youtube and other platforms like that become legally liable for copyright infringement because of something uploaded by its users So on the surface, this actually sounds like a good idea, but YouTube is warning about some unintended consequences. For instance, YouTube will begin to block content or actually remove it because of the big risk involved of getting sued from the copyright owners. And this could include everything from educational videos to cover songs for sure, tutorials, fan tributes, Remixes, mashups, parodies. There'll be no such thing as a viral video after this. And certainly it's going to eliminate the notice and takedown system that YouTube uses now. So this is going to apply to YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, SoundCloud, Dailymotion, Reddit, Snapchat. It's going to block your existing videos and prevent you from uploading new videos in the 28 states of the EU. So in other words, if you live in Europe, it's going to be a lot more difficult to upload to any of these services because you're going to have to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that you own the content. So what happens if you're in the United States? Well, it applies to you too in a roundabout way. First of all, all of your videos are going to get blocked in the EU, in Europe, if you have either partial copyright info or disputed copyright info. So that could mean that a whole big chunk of your audience will no longer be seeing your videos. Now, Article 13 isn't law yet, The final version is being written now, and we can't really tell what's going to happen. Of course, YouTube and Facebook and all of those major platforms are making a big push against it. And of course, you have publishers and labels that are saying, you know, this is probably a good idea. So who knows how it's going to shake out, but it's something that you should keep an eye on because it's going to affect everybody in the future. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, the 20 best digital audio workstations according to music radars readers now of course music radar is based in the uk so you have to take that into consideration 
And just like most of these types of lists, you have to take it with a grain of salt. But it's interesting anyway to look and see what European creators are using for Digital Audio Workstation. Okay, coming in at 20 is Magix Acid Pro. Now, this is a PC-only workstation. And, of course, it's been around for quite a while. Number 20. Number 19 is Ardor. That's subscription only. It goes across just about any platform you can think of. Number 18 is Steinberg Nuendo, available on PC and Mac. This is one that I particularly liked. I used it for a long time and uh, eventually switched to Pro Tools only because it was easier. Number 17 is Apple's GarageBand. Of course, this is Mac only. And because it's free, there's a lot of users and apparently a lot of happy users. Number 16 is Renoise. This is one I'm not familiar with, but it's a digital audio workstation that works across just about any platform. Number 15 is Magix Samplitude Pro X, another PC-only program. Number 14 is Motu's Digital Performer, which is available on PC and Mac. This was my very first workstation and one that I liked a lot. I eventually moved to Nuendo only because at the time, Digital Performer was great at MIDI and not particularly good at audio. Of course, that's changed now, and it's pretty much caught up to most other workstations. Number 13 is Traction, and of course, this is PC or Mac. Number 12, Mutool's MuLab. This is one I'm not familiar with, but again, PC and Mac. Number 11, Bitwig Studio, and again, PC or Mac. Number 10, Acoustica Mixcraft Pro Studio. This is PC only. It's one I'm not familiar with. Number 9 is Avid Pro Tools, again, PC and Mac. Number eight, Propellerhead's Reason, PC and Mac. Number seven is BandLab's Sonar, PC and Mac. And this has been resurrected from Gibson, who kind of let it go by the wayside, but now it's back strong as ever. Number six, Presonus Studio One, PC and Mac. This is one that's coming on strong, and I hear nothing but great things from Studio One users. Number five, Steinberg's Cubase Pro, PC and Mac. And again, I hear nothing but great things about this. And I know several Pro Tools users that have actually switched to Cubase Pro. Number four is Reaper, PC and Mac. And this is another one. It's kind of under the radar, but a lot of people really like this. Number three, Apple's Logic Pro. And this is Mac only. It's attractive because it's big bang for the buck at only $200. And you can do a lot. I personally think it's one of the best workstations for creating. There's so many great tools. Not my favorite for mixing, but boy, it's a creation tool. It's dynamite. Number two, Ableton Live. Again, PC and Mac. And what's the number one digital audio workstation according to Music Radar readers? ImageLine's FL Studio. Both PC and Mac, and what a surprise, FL Studio. Now again, take it with a grain of salt. Most reader polls like this are usually kind of skewed, and this is especially skewed because it's looking mostly at UK and European responders. Mark Pender is a trumpet player and vocalist who's played with Southside Johnny, Little Steven, and Bruce Springsteen. And as a member of the Miami Horns, he's toured and recorded with Diana Ross, Joe Cocker, Robert Cray, and Bon Jovi, among others. Since 1993, he has performed on Late Night with Conan O'Brien and The Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien as a member of the Max Weinberg 7 and The Tonight Show Band. In the interview, we talked about how musically cool it was to grow up in Kansas City, life on the road doing the Chitlin Circuit, playing at the Super Bowl, making the transition to playing nighttime TV with Conan O'Brien, and much more. Mark and I spoke via phone from his home in Los Angeles. 
I want to go back to the beginning. Tell me how you got into this business. Man, I don't know. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people will say, you don't choose it. It chooses you. <laughs> um, and, and I, I really think I fall into that category. I, you know, I, I grew up in the Kansas city, Missouri area. And, um, you know, it just seemed like music was around everywhere, church, school, um, you know, and then started in the, in the band program, they bring brought around a bunch of instruments and uh, I tried the trumpet that time they had you play the cornet and got a tone out of it. So I said, okay, I'll play that. <laughs> and, uh, had fun with it. You know, um, they made it fun. You know, we were in the fifth grade, so, uh, it was, it was certainly different than sitting through math class <laughs> yeah. uh, or science. And, um, you know, I didn't know then that I'd become a, a trumpet player, that it would be something I did forever because I thought, well, I like doing this, but you know, I don't know what I want to do. Yeah. And, you know, just through years, I remember I was, I was actually lucky in a lot of ways to grow up in Kansas city because you had that rich jazz blues scene there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just, just around the time that I was finishing high school, some guys told me, you got to go down to 18th and Highland after 1230. That's, or I think 1.30 was when the clubs closed. you got to go down to 1823 Highland, the Mutual Musicians Foundation, which I found out later was Local 526, the uh, Black Musicians Union before uh, the two merged. Uh. Yeah, it was a really cool place. And so they, they had jam sessions there every Friday and Saturday night basically started somewhere around midnight and would go until basically everybody went home. Wow. And sometimes the sun would be out depending on who came through town. And, you know, I was down there. Uh, uh, Charles Mangus came down there. Count Basie was down there a lot. You know, you had all these, uh, you know, great horn players that came through all the guys from Basie's band, uh, Al Gray and, you know, Jimmy Forrest, all these people were, you know, would come by and, and hit the all night jam if they came through town. And, um, so as the, the first time that I went down there, then I, I immediately became addicted to going down to this place. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was down there every Friday and Saturday coming home early AM and, and it was, just, it was just great because they really took me under their wing too. these guys, you know, these old guys, a bunch of them had played with great, uh, bands. Jay McShann was a, a, I don't know if you know who that is. No, I don't actually. He's a, he's a piano player. Uh, he's passed away a few years ago, but he had a big band in the thirties and forties in Kansas city. And he had a young alto saxophone player that played lead alto in his band, Charlie Parker. <laughs> and, and he, uh, he actually brought Charlie Parker to New York. And then he becomes the Charlie Parker that becomes legendary after that. But none of that would have happened without Jay McShann. Jay McShann also teamed up um, in the late 40s, early 50s with Joe Turner. Oh, yeah. And uh, they had a residency in Kansas City uh, at, a, at a club, uh, I think seven nights a week, uh, Jay McShann, Joe Turner. So he was down there a lot. And, and, there was a spirit of kindness 
where it's basically a jam session. Anybody could play. Um, but there were some unspoken rules, too. If you didn't know what you were doing, you need to shut up. <laughs> some of the older guys would tell you. All right, that's enough. <laughs> Next. And, uh, you know, you just never knew who would show up there. Sometimes, you know, it'd be nobody. And sometimes it'd be a really great group of people come after their gigs. It was actually through that that I got my first full-time job in music. Jimmy Carter uh, was president. He started the CETA program, uh, Comprehensive Employment Training Action. And there were two bands that were created through this program. It was a, it was a program designed to to put people in job situations so at the end of their run with CETA, they'd be employable. Um, so there were two bands. One was in New York and the other was in Kansas City was an 18-piece big band. So I got tapped to do that band. And a life-changing experience, let's just say that. A fantastic training ground, jeez. I was 18. Um, uh, the youngest guy in the band, the only white kid in the band, and there were a bunch of old veterans there because they felt like the the best way for people to learn is to be around guys who had done it with their careers. And uh, I ended up playing the lead trumpet for that until I left Kansas City about a year and a half, two years later. And uh, so I had a great start there. Wow. No kidding. That's You were fortuitous. You don't think of Kansas City as the musical breeding ground that it is, and you've certainly experienced it. Is it like that today? You know, it still is per capita. There's probably more live music than there is in Los Angeles. Huh. Because it, it never it never really went out of vogue. I mean, it, of course it took a hit. I mean, I noticed it in New York first and certainly noticed it out here that uh, places to go play uh, are, you know, they're not in abundance like they were at one time. Yeah. But when I go back home, there's all these places that have propped up and people are out doing gigs and stuff. And, uh, you know, considering it's a, a metro area with about a million and a half people, I think, there's a pretty decent scene going on there. And the jam sessions are still happening at that place that, uh, at the Musicians Foundation. That is awesome. Wow. That's something you don't find. No, you really don't. It's, it's a scene that's, uh, of course, uh, you know, I became friends on Facebook with a lot of younger guys out there uh, and, you know, guys that I grew up with, uh, obviously, but they all make the same complaint. You know, how do you, you know, how do you make it without leaving Kansas City? Mm, yeah. You know, and I see you came from a relatively small town also. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that becomes the 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 question. Can you do it from your small town? You know, um, I wasn't smart enough. I think the answer is yes, you can do it from your small town. And especially today with all the recording technology, you can record. And if you have a core group of people that that you can record with and experiment with you can just about do anything but there's something to be said for like me i ended up in new york uh there's something to be said for like being the youngest most inexperienced guy in in a few circles that you travel in and growing with it and, and that was the case for me when i got to new york what brought you to new york well, I thought I'd probably have to leave Kansas City, and so I thought it would either be New York or Los Angeles, because that, those were the two music capitals in the in the late '70s when I was growing up. 
So this guy, uh, soul jazz organist, Charles Erlen. I'm a big fan, by the way. Oh, really? You know Char- Charlie? Yes. Oh, big fan. So he came through town and, and uh, you know, me and my, I had this partner of mine, his name was Steve Harvey, great sax player. Um, he said, when I come back to town, I want you guys to join my band. And, and of course, we're like, sure, man. Yeah, whatever. So about a year later, he comes through town. And he goes, "No, I wasn't kidding. I just signed with Columbia Records. I want you to, I want you to join my band uh, and come back to New York with me." Uh, I wasn't sold on it. You know, I didn't get the logistics of the whole thing. He was touring in a, uh, you know, a school bus that he drove, <laughs> and there were no guarantees or anything. He said, "Well, you'll probably make, you know, I can't remember." It was a figure that seemed like a lot of money back then that would sound ridiculous now, like something like $350 a week or something like that. Yeah. And we were already making more than that in Kansas City. Hmm. Okay. Uh, but, but my friend, he was like, man, we'll go to New York. We're going to own that town. So we'd travel around on the bus for a couple of months, uh, cold Midwest, and get to New York. He, we do a about two weeks in Newark at a, at an organ bar. And, uh, there wasn't, he basically told us, look, man, I don't have anything going on. If you want to go back home, you can go back home. Oh boy. So now I'm in New York. My, my buddy had had enough. Cause he didn't say that with the three fifty, you also had to pay your hotel rooms and food out of that too. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're like, we're, you know, me and him and the drummer, uh, Chico Rouse, he was Charlie Rouse's son, great drummer. Um, we decided that we would, the three of us would uh, split one room and somebody alternate sleeping on the floor. Hmm. And we're already sleeping in flea bags. Like we're, we're basically touring the country doing Chetland circuit, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we weren't, you know, these weren't five-star hotels. They weren't three-star. They probably weren't even two-star hotels. They mm-hmm. might, you know, might be lucky if they got a star. But, uh, you know, my buddy decided I can't take this. You know, I'm going to go back. And I, I stuck it out. Great learning experience and tough as hell. Yeah, no kidding. That's one of the hardest places to get dropped into. That's for sure. Yeah, and I started in North Jersey because it was cheaper. Yeah. So, okay. you know, I just said, well, I'm going to stay in North Jersey and because the rent was cheaper there. Where? Out of curiosity. Uh, Bergen County. I, I, the first place that I got my own place was Hackensack and it was in a rooming house. And I shared the bedroom, I shared the bathroom with, uh, four other rooms. <laughs> and it was still, the weekly was almost as much as the houses I was renting in Kansas city. Mm, yeah. So it was a little bit disturbing. Charlie didn't really have any work for a while. Says we're going to do this record. Eventually, we do get around to doing the record. Um, he brings us in the studio, uh, and then and I thought the track sounded really good. Did you go into Rudy Van Gelder's studio? No, we didn't. We went uh, into Soundworks. Okay. I think that was in the West Fifty somewhere. It doesn't exist anymore. And I think Tom Pearson was initially the producer on the date and we did a whole record. And then Charlie freaked out and said, I, 
I want to have names on this thing and none of you guys are names. Mm. So, you know, he hires a rhythm section and, uh, then he, then he has a contractor, uh, get the horns for the horn dates. He wanted to do something that was a little bit more, uh, R and B that could place on the R and B charts at the time. Mm-hmm. So he got Tom, Tom 84, the guy who arranged for earth, wind and fire to do the horn charts. And so I asked if the, if the contractor would use me and he said, no. Mm-hmm. So I didn't end up on the record after leaving Kansas city to end up on the record and be in this guy's band. Wow. Pretty great, huh? Wow. Well, yeah, but you know, it's kind of a typical story, isn't it? In a way. Sure. And the contractor had his guys. Yeah. Uh, Victor Paz was one of the trumpet players. Incredible trumpet player. Yeah. And then he had this kid who had basically just got to town around the same time that I did. Uh, he was from a musical family and uh, his dad knew the contractor. So he was on the date too. Wenton Marcellus. Oh boy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And no solos though, just like, you know, playing charts. Yeah. Yeah. You know, nobody had heard of him really. You know, he hadn't, he hadn't put out any records or anything yet. I mean, he did shortly after and, 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 you know, and I think the first record was like piccolo a trumpet or something like that. He did, he did like a, a classical music record first and then started becoming the tour de force of jazz that he became. But, uh, you know, as a result, I resented him, even though I respect him. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. That's kind of natural. Well, Mark, how did you get to the Miami horns then? Well then, so I'm in Jersey. And, um, so there was a trumpet player, Mike Spangler, who was already in the Miami horns. Uh, and, uh, we did a couple of sessions together with some, I'm, I'm going to say it was a Mexican disco record was the first session we did together. So, you know, we're just hanging out and we like doing a couple of different bands together. Really great guy, great trumpet player, uh, still out in Jersey. So then they get asked to do Diana Ross's tour. And I guess this is 1981. And so they had another trumpet player, Ricky Gazda, and also a great trumpet player. When they start rehearsals to go to Vegas to do, just to do this run with Diana, she was reducing the horn section from like 13 pieces to five. Hmm. 13's big, boy. Yeah, she was a big deal at that time, like arena tour yeah. kind of stuff too. Uh, but but it was the beginning of the end of her bringing around a book and having new horn players because she wanted something that looked cool. And apparently she had seen the Asbury Jukes one night in New York and said, I want a horn section like that. And so then of course they actually asked the horn section. So Ricky had a, an accident on his bicycle and they called me up and they said, look, if you can get over here, you know, you can do this run with us with Diana. And I'm struggling in New York, you know, like working in a factory during the day, trying to do gigs, you know, barely staying alive, you know, just, you know, but I didn't want to go back to Kansas city. Yeah. And, and my best friend, the guy who, uh, talked me into moving there in the first place, got beat to death in Kansas city. Mm. Wow. It was a horrific racially motivated crime made national headlines at the time. Uh, one of the first hate crime cases ever tried in the United States. It's mm. horrible. Yeah, it was, it was very dark moment in my life. So I go over there and do this, 
you know, I make it over there to the rehearsal. And, you know, one of the first things they want me to do is to, well, here, take a couple of charts home uh, and take the 13 parts and reduce them down to five <laughs> and come back tomorrow at like 9 a.m. or something like that. I said, sure, no problem. So I'm like up looking at all these. And they didn't have the score. They just had the parts. So I have like these 13 parts laid out my apartment floor in Fort Lee, New Jersey. I'm like trying to figure this out, you know. And I came back and ended up doing the gig. Um, in the meantime, something happened uh, with Ricky. And while I'm in Vegas, we were doing like a three-week run at the Riviera. They uh, they asked me if I'd do the jukes. And I, I, you know, was just thrilled, you know. Yeah. The only downside was we're going to do a gig. We aren't going to have time to rehearse. So they handed me like, you know, seven or eight records or, you know, something like that. And here's the songs we'll probably do. Listen to it and learn whatever part you hear. And Mike Spangler was savvy enough to be able to play the other part off of what I was playing. Wow. So we're doing playing with Diana every night. And, and I was going back to my room and trying to learn uh, all the jukes parts. Jeez. And then after that, I was in the band. Well, of course, I remember the Jukes because I used to live in Asbury Park for a little bit, and the band I was with used to play at the Stone Pony a lot. Nice. And it was the time, it would have been uh, 75, 76 when the Jukes first started. So I, I think the Jukes, they would be playing on a Tuesday night, and we'd play on a Thursday night, but Tuesday usually was open, so we'd go see them. So I remember seeing them a lot all over. It's very, very cool, very cool time, I have to say. And you came in a little later than that. I did, 1981. Yeah, I don't know what it was like then, because already I was out in California, so I really don't have a feel for the scene at that point. You know, it was still a great scene down there. Uh, and once again, there were a lot more clubs, and... Uh, you know, horn band, rock and roll, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I really, and I really wanted to be a jazz player, you know, but we had always had a funk band in Kansas city called mass transit. And I, you know, I just loved music. You know, I didn't care to become a purist. Well, and so when I got the chance to do the jukes, uh, I saw that there was enough soul in it for me to dig it. And then once I got into it, I just fell in love with the music and the scene. Yeah, yeah. And and the energy, you know, all of a sudden I'm playing in a rock band, you know, as a horn player, you know, you feel like a, a you know, a, like a unicorn or something, you know. It was completely different, that's for sure. The whole feel of that, and I, I guess especially from the gigs that you're used to doing to suddenly being there, that definitely would have been a change. But let me ask you a question. When were you singing in all this? Did you begin to sing right from the beginning? Yeah, I always sang from, you know, from church to, uh, you know, uh, you know, choir, sang stuff. Uh, first band I was actually in, I, I was a singer. Uh-huh. And then when I started joining bands in Kansas City with the, with the Center City Orchestra, the CETA program band, uh, they'd cart me out front and sing a couple of songs. Nice reviews from the Kansas City Star back in the day. They said I looked like a a, a Sunday school painting of Jesus. <laughs> That's great. 
coming up and singing the blues. Oh. I had this long wavy hair. I parted it down in the middle. Um, you know, the only white guy in the band, this young looking guy coming up there and singing the blues. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty funny. I love it. That's great. Uh, well, okay. So the Miami horn started to play with a lot of people. And one of the tours that you did was with Bruce Springsteen, but I'm really curious about the Super Bowl gig. Only because I don't think I've ever talked to anybody that's done a Super Bowl gig. So I just kind of want to know what, what goes on there behind the scenes. Well, that was certainly one of the craziest things that I've ever done. And maybe one of the most frightening to think of, you know, because all of a sudden you're being told there's like a hundred million people watching. You know? <laughs> right. And, and when we toured with Springsteen back in the eighties, I mean, I think we did a, one show in East Berlin before the wall came down. I think they said there was like 350,000 people there, you know? Wow. That was a lot of damn people. Yeah. No kidding. But now all of a sudden you have a stadium with like 85,000 people in it. You're being watched by another hundred million. It was a little bit hard for me to get over it, <laughs> but they do something. I don't know if they still do this, but at that time they wanted to record everything and uh, as we were going to play it, we played it live and they recorded it in case if there were any audio glitches. Okay. That makes sense. And then we played along with it. And depending on if there were any problems, you know, they, they'd use the total live with us. They use total live. That's awesome. I had no idea. Yeah. Well, they had a safety that we played along with though. Yeah. Okay. But I, you know, when I look at it and listen to it, I don't hear it. I mean, that's all, that's all live mistakes and everything. And, and I have to say probably one of the most exhilarating moments of my life too. You know, I wasn't sure we were going to be able to do it because we needed to get down there on a Conan day and Conan and our producer, Jeff Ross, okay. Uh, me, LaBamba and Jerry Vivino to go down there and, you know, I'm doing the Super Bowl, and I'm, I've always been a big football fan. I've seen every Super Bowl. That's really exciting, you know? No kidding. No kidding. Well, okay, so you get on stage and you start to play. What was that like? Because there's not much setup time. No, it's like it's like a 15-minute setup time. Yeah. Uh, but they, man, they there's some mastery going on behind the scenes between audio and staging and everything. It all comes together in 15 minutes. It's amazing. And that's why they have the safety, I think, just in case something weird happens. And pyro and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we did not rehearse with the pyro. <laughs> and uh, so just before, I just remember being so nervous. I, I thought I was going to throw up or pass out or something. You know, just I was so uptight. And, you know, it occurred to me, you're going to want to remember this, that you enjoyed it. And uh, they call us to get out on stage, and by the time Bruce counted off the thing, I was elated. I was, I was, felt like I was in heaven. I bet. You know, I got over whatever the fear was. I'm getting goosebumps just talking to you about it. Wow. I mean, vicariously, I can, I can kind of feel the energy that you're talking about. It's very cool. Yeah, and and, and it looked like Bruce was nervous too. I can't say that for a fact. You know, I mean, that kind of thing, man. There's, that's big pressure right there. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And, uh, you know, we get out there and I, I just, you know, I took the adrenaline and, and, and soaked it all in. And then the pyro goes off behind us, which <laughs> we hadn't rehearsed. But I'm talking about like six or seven feet behind us. These massive things that are going up in the air and exploding 
I mean, you know, I don't know, like a hundred feet up in the air. Yeah. Huh. Oh my God. It was, you know, I was not ready for that. Huh. I bet. Well, cool. I didn't realize that you were doing Conan already, but let's go there for a second. So how did you get the Conan gig? That's the Miami horns basically, right? The, that got the Conan gig. Um, well, basically it was me and La Bamba oh, from okay. the Miami horns that got the Conan gig. So I'd been doing this, this band with Max Weinberg in New York. There's a band called killer Joe. And we were playing a, a Tuesday night, like every other week at tramps, the new tramps, which has gone out of business too. Um, but it was in the new location of tramps. We were playing every other Tuesday for like 50 bucks each. And we did a record and it's through that record that Max secured the audition for the Conan show. So then he puts the band together uh, and Jerry had worked in uh, killer Joe and Jimmy had on and off and he put together the band and he goes, well, I want La Bamba too. Uh, brings La Bamba in. We get together one day before the audition and I was on tour with Robert Cray at the time. I was actually out here on tour in Los Angeles and I get the call and I changed my flight for the few days off that I had went back home to New York and we rehearsed one day and we did the audition the next day. And then I rejoined the band in Seattle like three days later. And when did you find out you get the gig? You know, about a week and a half later. Um, and I'm still on tour and I'm like, Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. And I loved Robert Cray too. I didn't want to leave the band at first, but I, you know, well, that's not actually true. I, I knew what, I knew what being in late night could be, you know, the chance to be home, steady money, everything. You yeah. Know? Yeah. You know, I assumed that it would be, you know, I, I, a huge fan of Letterman, huge fan of Johnny Carson. I knew that this couldn't be bad. And I ended up leaving Robert's band at that time. But I was technically doing both for about two months. I was I was heading out on the on the weekends and playing with Robert, and then flying back and and doing the Conan show. And they had us on a thirteen week cycle at that time. They were only we only knew thirteen weeks at a time that we had to gig. Yeah. Well, what was the transition like to that? Because obviously, playing with Robert Cray or just playing with anybody live, and even doing studio gigs is way different from doing television. So, what was that like for you? You know, to me, it was all the same because, you know, I, we, we got to play, I, you know, they were really generous with solos. All the horn players got solos and I just had fun with it. And, you know, it was a great opportunity also. It was also a great profile. We didn't play the same music all the time. You know, it, it, it was really great. Um, the only thing that was different is that whole stop and start thing. Oh, right. Yeah. So now all of a sudden you got to watch somebody and if you go over, it's really bad. Or if you don't start when everybody starts, it's really bad. So there was a learning curve with that, you know, trying to make sure we're not getting in the holes and, you know, there's definitely a learning curve with that. Uh, you know, but over time we got better and better at it. You know, you become a little bit more intuitive once you start doing it for a while too, because it is a specific very strange, specific in and out. What's the schedule on that, Mark? I used to hang around a lot when Johnny Carson was doing a show. I knew a lot of the people in the band and, and in the crew. 
I think they used to rehearse at three o'clock in the afternoon and then it would be five thirty is when they, they do the show. Is that the same way with Conan? Well, when we got out here, we started our call time uh, for most of the band was at noon. So we would rehearse, uh, go over some stuff at noon and then we'd sit through comedy rehearsal in case they needed anything. And then our show taped at four thirty out here. Oh, okay. In New York, it was closer to twelve thirty, and we were and we played at five thirty. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, not a long day, but still a day. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, sometimes we were just sitting around, uh, just waiting uh, to see if anything's coming up. Yeah, that's the worst part, isn't it? It's the worst part about anything. If you have to sit around and wait, it's okay if you're doing something, but when you're sitting and waiting, that's tough. Well, that's really what the career in music is, isn't it? Yeah, I guess it is. You're right. <laughs> You're doing one or the other, yeah. You're not really getting paid to play because you love doing that. You're really getting paid to wait around and be in place. Right. What's that famous Tony Bennett quote, I think? it's uh, They don't pay us to be on stage. They pay us for the travel, something like that. Oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, you've been... With Conan for a long, long time now, so obviously this suits you very well. You decided to make the transition from New York to Los Angeles. You still gig, and you're still able to play gigs. So what's not to like, right? Well, yeah, except there's a new development. About four weeks ago, uh, he ended uh, uh, the band. uh, The band got let go. Really? I didn't know. Yeah, Conan's transitioned to a half-an-hour format starting in 2019. And there'll be no house band and no live music. Wow. So he's changing the format to rework it. 25 years and over 4,000 shows. That's a pretty good run, Mark. Yeah, those people are so great, so nice to us. I I love them all dearly. Uh, It's the type of opportunity that hardly anybody gets. Yeah. And and I feel like the, the amount that I learned and the things that I got to see and the people I got to be with, you know, God, I'm so grateful. What a chance. So that being said, what's on the horizon then? That's a good question, isn't it? (laughs) Um, right now I've been kind of playing with everybody, you know, whoever asked and, and unfortunately it's not making a lot of money, uh, but I want to stay out there and stay sharp and I'll look at what the future is, you know, uh, start writing more, start doing my own band more touring if it comes up you know really it's all wide open uh, there's a million different things i can do it's actually kind of exciting with, with your band and with your pedigree i bet that you can do the industrial circuit and really make some dough yeah i know a lot of people say that i've never seen real evidence of it you know those whole corporate industrial stuff you know we'll see i'm certainly open to it but it is an exciting time because it, you know after 25 years i would have done the show until the day I died, literally, mm-hmm. if I could have. I mean, I really loved doing it that much. But it is, however, exciting to, you know, think, wow, there's a lot of other stuff out there, you know, people that you could play with, uh, things that you can do, uh, you know, focus on writing. <clears throat> it's a great town for movie and television work. You know, and, and, and I've been doing some clinics and stuff like that coming up in the near future, you know, working with some kids and stuff. I've, I've found that that's really fulfilling, too. I'm enjoying that. 
you know, seeing kids who are new with their horns, you know, and I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. 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 Well, cool. We'll get the word out for you then. Yeah, please do. I'm, you know, for hire. I'm, I'm back as a gun for hire. Cool. All right. One more question then, Mark. What is the best piece of business advice that you received from somebody or maybe you learned along the way? Wow. I've said this a few times, you know, I be kind, be on time, be easy to hang with. And, you know, I dabbled in the whole drinking and drug situation for a long time. Never got me anywhere. Never helped me. Staying away from, from that and just being kind. You know, nobody wants an asshole on the band. Yeah, right. Amen. He, even, even the greatest players in the world, if they're an asshole, they have trouble. I, I'm always amazed that the really nice guy who can barely play gets the gigs. Yeah. Because, because it's a human situation. It's all about relationships. And, you know, and I, I never really felt like I was a studio musician. So, you know, why did, why did things work out for me? And I really, I have to say it's because of my relationships with people. You know, I've been lucky to build relationships from the ground up with a lot of really talented, wonderful people. And, you know, everybody gets there together. You can find out more about Mark on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Mark dot Pender. P-E-N-D-E-R dot 54, mark dot pender dot 54. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, and now on Spotify. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts to new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Oh, 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 oh,